This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain, and for more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Kristin Luoma, GreenKRI.com. The Story Girl by Lucy Maud Montgomery. Chapter 4 The Wedding Veil of the Proud Princess. When we had lived for a fortnight in Carlisle, we belonged there, and the freedom of all its small fry was conferred on us. With Peter and Dan, with Felicity and Cecily, and the story girl, with pale, grey-eyed little Sarah Ray, we were boon companions. We went to school, of course, and certain home chores were assigned to each of us for the faithful performance of which we were held responsible. But we had long hours for play. Even Peter had plenty of spare time when the planting was over. We got along very well with each other in the main, in spite of some minor differences of opinion. As for the grown-up denizens of our small world, they suited us also. We adored Aunt Olivia. She was pretty and merry and kind, and above all she had mastered to perfection the rare art of letting children alone. If we kept ourselves tolerably clean and refrained from quarrelling or talking slang, Aunt Olivia did not worry us. Aunt Janet, on the contrary, gave us so much good advice and was so constantly telling us to do this or not to do the other thing that we could not remember half of her instructions, and did not try. Uncle Roger was, as we had been informed, quite jolly and fond of teasing. We liked him but we had an uncomfortable feeling that the meaning of his remarks was not always that which met the ear. Sometimes we believed Uncle Roger was making fun of us, and the deadly seriousness of youth in us resented that. The Uncle Alec we gave our warmest love. We felt that we always had a friend at court in Uncle Alec, no matter what we did or left undone. And we never had to turn his speeches inside out to discover their meaning. The social life of juvenile Carlyle centered in the day and Sunday schools. We were especially interested in our Sunday school, for we were fortunate enough to be assigned to a teacher who made our lessons so interesting that we no longer regarded Sunday school attendance as a disagreeable weekly duty, but instead looked forward to it with pleasure and tried to carry out our teacher's gentle precepts, at least on Mondays and Tuesdays. I'm afraid the remembrance grew a little dim the rest of the week. She was also deeply interested in missions, and one talk on this subject inspired the story girl to do a little home missionary work on her own account. The only thing she could think of along this line was to persuade Peter to go to church. Felicity did not approve of the design, and said so plainly. He won't know how to behave, for he's never been inside a church door in his life she warned the story girl. He'll likely do something awful, and then you'll feel ashamed and wish you'd never asked him to go, and we'll all be disgraced. It's all right to have our mite-boxes for the heathen and send missionaries to them, but they're far away and we don't have to associate with them. But I don't want to have to sit in a pew with a hired boy. But the story girl undauntedly continued to coax the reluctant Peter. It was not an easy matter. 
Peter did not come of a church-going stock, and besides, he alleged he had not yet made up his mind whether to be a Presbyterian or a Methodist. "'It isn't a bit of difference which you are,' pleaded the story-girl. "'They both go to heaven.' "'But one way must be easier or better than the other, or else they'd all be one kind,' argued Peter. "'I want to find the easiest way, and I've got a hankering after the Methodists. My Aunt Jane was a Methodist.' "'Isn't she one still?' asked Felicity, pertly. "'Well, I don't know exactly. She's dead,' said Peter rebukingly. "'Do people go on being just the same after they're dead?' "'No, of course not. They're angels, then, not Methodists or anything, but just angels. That is, if they go to heaven.' "'Sposin' they went to the other place?' But Felicity's theology broke down at this point. She turned her back on Peter and walked disdainfully away. The story girl returned to the main point with a new argument. "'We have such a lovely minister, Peter. He looks just like the picture of St. John my father sent me. Only he is old and his hair is white. I know you'd like him. And even if you are going to be a Methodist, it won't hurt you to go to the Presbyterian Church.' The nearest Methodist church is six miles away at Markdale, and you can't attend there just now. Go to the Presbyterian church until you're old enough to have a horse. But s'posin' I get too fond of being Presbyterian and couldn't change if I wanted to, objected Peter. Altogether, the story girl had a hard time of it, but she persevered, and one day she came to us with the announcement that Peter had yielded. "'He's going to church with us tomorrow,' she said triumphantly. "'We were out in Uncle Roger's hill-pasture, "'sitting on some smooth round stones under a clump of birches. "'Behind us was an old grey fence, "'with violets and dandelions thick in its corners. "'Below us was the Carlisle Valley, "'with its orchard-embowered homesteads and fertile meadows. "'Its upper end was dim with a delicate spring mist.' Winds blew up the fields like wave upon wave of sweet savour, spice of bracken and balsam. We were eating little jam turnovers which Felicity had made for us. Felicity's turnovers were perfection. I looked at her and wondered why it was not enough that she should be so pretty and capable of making such turnovers. If she were only more interesting! Felicity had not a particle of the nameless charm and allurement which hung about every motion of the story-girl, and made itself manifest in her lightest word and most careless glance. Ah, well, one cannot have every good gift. The story-girl had no dimples at her slim brown wrists. We all enjoyed our turnovers, except Sarah Ray. She ate hers, but she knew she should not have done so. Her mother did not approve of snacks between meals, or of jam turnovers at any time. Once, when Sarah was in a brown study, I asked her what she was thinking of. "'I'm trying to think of something Ma hasn't forbid,' she answered with a sigh. We were all glad to hear that Peter was going to church, except Felicity. She was full of gloomy forebodings and warnings. "'I am surprised at you, Felicity King,' said Cecily severely. "'You ought to be glad that poor boy is going to get started in the right way.' 
"'There's a great big patch on his best pair of trousers,' protested Felicity. "'Well, that's better than a hole,' said the story girl, addressing herself daintily to her turnover. "'God won't notice the patch.' "'No, but the Carlyle people will,' retorted Felicity, in a tone which implied that what the Carlyle people thought was far more important. "'And I don't believe that Peter has got a decent stocking to his name. What will you feel like if he goes to church with the skin of his legs showing through the holes, Miss Story Girl?' "'I'm not a bit afraid,' said the Story Girl staunchly. "'Peter knows better than that.' "'Well, all I hope is that he'll wash behind his ears,' said Felicity resignedly. "'How is Pat today?' asked Cecily, by way of changing the conversation. "'Pat isn't a bit better. He just mopes about the kitchen,' said the Story Girl anxiously. "'I went out to the barn, and I saw a mouse. I had a stick in my hand, and I fetched a swipe at it. So! I killed it stone dead. Then I took it in to Paddy. Will you believe it?' He wouldn't even look at it. I'm so worried. Uncle Roger says he needs a dose of physic. But how is he to be made to take it? That's the question. I mixed a powder in some milk and tried to pour it down his throat while Peter held him. Just look at the scratches I got. And the milk went everywhere except down Pat's throat. Wouldn't it be awful if... if anything happened to Pat? whispered Cecily. "'Well, we could have a jolly funeral, you know,' said Dan. We looked at him in such horror that Dan hastened to apologize. "'I'd be awful sorry myself if Pat died, but if he did, we'd have to give him the right kind of funeral,' he protested. "'Why, Patty just seems like one of the family.' The story girl finished her turnover and stretched herself out on the grasses, pillowing her chin in her hands and looking at the sky. She was bareheaded, as usual, and her scarlet ribbon was bound fillet-wise about her head. She had twined freshly plucked dandelions around it, and the effect was that of a crown of brilliant golden stars on her sleek brown curls. "'Look at that long, thin, lacy cloud up there,' she said. "'What does it make you think of, girls?' "'A wedding veil.' said Cecily. That is just what it is, the wedding veil of the proud princess. I know a story about it. I read it in a book. Once upon a time... The story girl's eyes grew dreamy, and her accents floated away on the summer air like a wind-blown rose petals. There was a princess who was the most beautiful princess in the world, and kings from all lands came to woo her for a bride. But she was as proud as she was beautiful. She laughed all her suitors to scorn, and when her father urged her to choose one of them as her husband, she drew herself haughtily up so. And the story girl sprang to her feet, and for a moment we saw the proud princess of the old tale in all her scornful loveliness. And she said, I will not wed until a king comes who can conquer all kings. Then I shall be the wife of the king of the world, and no one can hold herself higher than I." So every king went to war to prove that he could conquer everyone else, 
and there was a great deal of bloodshed and misery. But the proud princess laughed and sang, and she and her maidens worked at a wonderful lace veil, which she meant to wear when the king of all kings came. It was a very beautiful veil, but her maidens whispered that a man had died, and a woman's heart had broken for every stitch set in it. Just when a king thought he had conquered everybody, some other king would come and conquer him. And so it went on until it did not seem likely the proud princess would ever get a husband at all. But still her pride was so great that she would not yield, even though everybody except the kings who wanted to marry her hated her for the suffering she had caused. One day a horn was blown at the palace gate, and there was one tall man in complete armor, with his visor down, riding on a white horse. When he said he had come to marry the princess, everyone laughed, for he had no retinue, and no beautiful apparel, and no golden crown. But I am the king who conquers all kings, he said. You must prove it before I shall marry you, said the proud princess. But she trembled and turned pale, for there was something in his voice that frightened her, and when he laughed his laughter was still more dreadful. "'I can easily prove it, beautiful princess,' he said. "'But you must go with me to my kingdom for the proof. "'Marry me now, and you and I and your father and all your court "'will ride straight away to my kingdom. "'And if you are not satisfied then that I am the king who conquers all kings, "'you may give me back my ring and return home free of me forevermore.' It was a strange wooing, and the friends of the princess begged her to refuse. But her pride whispered that it would be such a wonderful thing to be queen of the king of the world. So she consented, and her maidens dressed her, and put on the long lace veil that had been so many years a-making. Then they were married at once, but the bridegroom never lifted his visor, and no one saw his face. The proud princess held herself more proudly than ever but she was as white as her veil, and there was no laughter or merrymaking, such as should be at a wedding, and everyone looked at everyone else with fear in his eyes. After the wedding the bridegroom lifted his bride before him on his white horse, and her father and all the members of his court mounted too, and rode after them. On and on they rode, and the skies grew darker, and the wind blew and wailed and the shades of evening came down, and just in the twilight they rode into a dark valley filled with tombs and graves. "'Why have you brought me here?' cried the proud princess angrily. "'This is my kingdom,' he answered. "'These are the tombs of the kings I have conquered. Behold me, beautiful princess. I am death.' He lifted his visor. All saw his awful face. The proud princess shrieked. "'Come to my arms, my bride,' he cried. "'I have won you fairly. I am the king who conquers all kings.' He clasped her fainting form to his breast and spurred his white horse to the tombs. A tempest of rain broke over the valley and blotted them from sight. 
very sadly the old king and courtiers rode home, and never, never again did human eye behold the proud princess. But when those long white clouds sweep across the sky, the country people in the land where she lived say, Look you, there is the wedding veil of the proud princess. The weird spell of the tale rested on us for some moments after the story-girl had finished. We had walked with her in the place of death, and grown cold with the horror that chilled the heart of the poor princess. Dan presently broke the spell. "'You see, it doesn't do to be too proud, Felicity,' he remarked, giving her a poke. "'You'd better not say too much about Peter's patches.'" End of chapter 4